there are overwhelming, turbulent times, but that also means there is major potential to fill the cracks with new ideas and to transform these destructive systems. There are specific root causes for problems and holistic solutions everywhere. There is room for prosperity, there is room for regeneration and a shift in values. Another reality is possible and that's what we're exploring here today. Welcome to Sage Talking. My name is Rhys James and I am a nature campaigner in Australia, Adelaide. My background is in conservation science and before that education. So I did have intentions to become a primary school teacher. Uh, but with too many books and too much reading of reports and whatnot, I became quite uh, concerned about the climate and biodiversity crises. So I became quite active in the activism scene. And yeah, I think throughout my science degree, I felt quite disheartened by the lack of community emphasis on things such as outreach, politics and all that. And that's why I started Earthly Education, which is uh, a fairly large uh, Instagram account, but also an organization now with a whole bunch of volunteers. And we've got about 160,000 followers and we make a lot of content about the climate and biodiversity crises, amongst other things as well, such as justice. I obviously um, came in contact with you because I love Earthly Education. It's one of my favorite accounts on Instagram because I think, you know, it, I always learn something new. It's always thought-provoking and, and relevant. You know, it's always something valuable. So I really love that account. So good job with that. Um, <laughs> Thank and you. I think many other people do too because you do this great thing where you kind of share your account and the following you have um, and uh, help, you know, other creators in the environmental space to just share their posts as well, which is really, really awesome. And it also kind of enables, you know, all of us to discover new creators all over Instagram um, when there is a post that you share on Earthly Education as a collaborator. So I think that's a really great idea. I myself have used that many times because I think it can be quite disheartening if you do a lot of research and then you spend like two hours creating a post and then you see that two people saw that post because, you know, nobody gets the Instagram algorithm and how it works. So um, I think it's really great that you share that are you the sole founder or co-founder of, of Earthly Education? Uh, well, it's an interesting story. Uh, I started Earthly Education, but there was a process about a year and a half ago in which we merged with another entity uh, called Earth Hub Co. Um, and now we have a whole bunch of teams. So I, I am the content director. Uh, Dan is the content sorry the organizational director and then we've got a few other key members as well that focus on research and engagement and a few other aspects um but yeah i've been there since the beginning and it's been fantastic and just to bring it back to that uh collaboration component like that's been arguably my favorite part of earth education lately which so i'm so glad that you're appreciative and and want to keep using it because i love that earthly has become a bit of a platform and and tool that other content creators can use to reach new audiences and in doing so it means I get to make less content which is beautiful because I'm quite busy with my uh, local campaigning and, and activism that I do uh, here in South Australia so it's been yeah. fantastic just watching everyone else make content and, and use Earthly it's been so good. Yeah and I think it's good because it brings in so many different opinions people from all over the world and it's not one-sided you know it's very diverse uh, which I love. Um, so I, I want to ask you, Earthly Education, um, as an organization, what is the off-social media side? Uh, what do you do in campaigning, outreach, kind of the, the let's say, off-screen activism? Yeah, well, um, we've not done as much as I would like because everyone inside the team, so it's very volunteer-based, no one gets paid and we have no income, which is perhaps why we're so free to speak about everything and we're not we don't have any accountability, which is fantastic, but it means that we don't have much capacity. So we haven't done a whole lunch offline as much as I would like, but we have done, uh, attended a lot of uh, rallies in which we uh, have stools and try and bring, I guess, education and tools and knowledge to young activists that traditionally might be lacking in those resources, especially uh, when we do that, it's in person, it's very 
geographically relevant to where we are. So, for example, in South Australia, we're always connecting the climate crisis to, say, collapsing ecosystems within our state uh, because we can then, I guess, lobby and, and, and act uh, to make our government change on those ecosystems, which I think is really important. And yeah. uh, we also have started running campaigns as well. That's very, relatively new, um, but we're starting to look at um, bringing campaigns into what we do. So basically uh, using separate tools such as contacting key decision makers, petitions, but also getting people to partake in uh, their own lifestyle, I guess, changes. So I'm not pushing individual action there, but I'm just getting people to involve themselves in certain activities that they can do so that they can inspire others. So I've started to realise that there's not actually a clear barrier between the digital world and the physical world. And I think the more that we can accept that, uh, the more likely that we can do our work. So for what I've been by that is I want to keep making content that uh, people can use everywhere as well. So I've got a lot of friends that are teachers and they actually use a lot of Earthly Education's content, whether that's in the Instagram format or our blog posts or our TikToks or anything like that. Um, it's really quite a powerful learning tool because young people are really engaged and reciprocal to, I guess, the format of social media. So it's something we should start utilising more. So long story short, not as much as I would like, and we're in a real transition period of starting to look at what we want to start doing more of uh, beyond the Instagram account. Um, so I guess maybe in, in two years we can bookmark another another chat and hopefully I'll have more to report then. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's the good thing. You know, these things can continually evolve. You can always, you know, you make different connections with other people. Then there are new ideas and different formats that you think could work and I think it's really great obviously as you said um, young people today are uh, well very reciprocative to anything that has to do with social media and the internet so it's obviously a great outlet because um, you know it's it's also about what you consume and consuming the content that is on earthly education is definitely so much more valuable than a lot of the excuse my french but the crap that is out there <laughs> you know that is just empty that brings no value that is kind of just passing the time uh on the screen while not actually engaging you know in the world and earthly education is just really something i love as i said it it's so thought-provoking you also share um, a lot of um, different quotes and tweets by climate scientists and so on. And, and I'm, I'm going to read some later, but I also love how people like in the comments just exchange ideas and some like then it's about, <sighs> oh, food miles, um, like they don't make such a big difference. And then people are in there who are like, oh, but we want local food. And then people just start conversations. So I really <laughs> love that. It's such an active comment section. It kind of, I wish that we had more capacity to moderate it and uh, be more involved and have discussions in our comment section. But when you're getting 300 to 400 to 500 comments, every, well, not every post, but lately, yes. And uh, we just can't moderate or keep up. But we do have a whole bunch of new volunteers and we're looking at uh, filling that niche and asking a few volunteers to keep up that discussion. Because I think it's really important that when someone asks a question in the comment section that someone is actually responding and, and that might be in a message form so it's a bit more personal a bit more safe and inclusive yeah. um, but I think quite often those questions are the same questions that a lot of people are having like a lot of other actors one of the most interesting pieces of activism that I've ever done is in this group I won't name what it is just out of safety reasons but we try to work with the Facebook algorithm to prioritize climate positive comments rather than uh, traditionally like trolling climate denial it's quite in Australia. I'm not sure how it works in the rest of the world, but in Australia, like we have a lot of issue with climate disinformation, uh, and we have like our comment sections on Facebook are riddled with climate denial because we have this place, this platform called Sky News, uh, who Rupert Murdoch owns, and it's arguably one of the worst disinformation of climate denial in the world. So, in our I guess public discourse, which isn't really public discourse, but Facebook public discourse in the comment section, it's horrible when there's so many people constantly denying climate change and also just talking shit about activists and scientists and, and the like. So this group that I'm in, we <clears throat> play with the algorithm and make sure that we're uh, getting climate positive comments to the top and we like work together to make sure that uh, like we get the most likes so that it's seen by the most people. And it's 
I find that really fascinating and it's such an engaged, powerful group of people. And personally, I, I love it. And it's really easy because you can just do it when traditionally you'd be looking at something dumb on Facebook. Instead, you can do something quite productive, which is combating climate disinformation. And we do it quite effectively and like systematically backed by evidence that works. So I love that. And um, I will cycle back real quick because I have one extra thing that Earthly is working on that I don't mind preaching to the world in case someone else does it because that that's another thing with earthly. I don't really mind if people steal things and just use it because we don't really want to exist in five, 10 years. We don't, we don't have goals to exist in five, 10 years. Like we don't want to be doing this work. We just think that we need to so that in the future it is a nice future and we haven't got like climate apocalypse basically. Um, so a new thing that we're working on or I'm personally working on, is called like the climate nexus of campaigners. So earthly education being one, but I want to reach out to uh, a whole bunch of different key influencers and massive, large Instagram accounts and build an alliance. And every sort of month or so we can democratically vote on a campaign idea uh, and then come together and make sure that we're posting and simultaneously posting so we can get a sense of viralness to it. And we can create uh, campaign outcomes like overnight. So like let's say there's an election coming up or a global climate conference or the biodiversity conference later this year or anything that's say a shitty corporation like Amazon or someone's doing, like we can flip the switch and then overnight our campaign with our 20 million followers together can just create an unreal sense of pressure that traditionally I've not seen anywhere before. Um, and we can do that. And that's what social media has shown us that we can do. It's like the first time, I think, in modern history that we kind of control the narrative. And yes, obviously social media has all its crapness to it and, and do, they control the narrative. But like the best example is, is in Australia, uh, we just had a climate election in which the outcome was decided by people voting on climate. And neither major party talked about climate change really and the media didn't talk about it once. So the fact that social media is playing in that, I think was probably the biggest key to that success. Yeah, anyway, crazy. I, I love that lot. idea. That's absolutely amazing. I would love to see that take off. Um, I think mm. that's really great. And as you said, like the the impact and the pressure that social media can create, I think is sometimes completely underestimated. Um, because honestly, I also have I've said this before, I don't know if I would be knowledge-wise about the climate crisis, about all these things that are going on without social media, and I honestly don't think so. <laughs> um, so I think the impact uh, sometimes is very undervalued and definitely very important um, to play a huge factor here. As you said, I think there are also been studies done like how this has influenced elections and other th and, and opinions really in the world. Mm. So using it for positive um, is definitely crucial. So um, yeah, I, I wanted to know, like touch a little bit about, um, you already shared a little bit um, of your background, but what is kind of your story? How did you become like, let's say an enlightened human being who realized that <laughs> we live like in a crisis rippled world that is kind of controlled by an elite? What, what's your story there? How did you um, become uh, so aware of all of this? I, I like people ask me this question a lot and I still am yet to work out what it was in my early twenties that flipped that switch because I haven't actually put my finger on it yet. I think we just probably hit the nail on the head there in social media. I think I've been quite active with making like fun little things before being an environmentalist with like quite separate sort of like meme accounts and stuff like that. And I think being so uh, open to new ideas on social media, that's probably what radicalized me, but I've also been a really long appreciator of nature. And I think just being somewhat uh, nature-based inclined and a really appreciated exploring the world. And I think I was quite privileged in the sense that when I uh, graduated my first degree, I'd, I'd worked a lot and saved a fair bit of money. And I was privileged enough to go uh, overseas for the first time. And I went to Asia and I went to... Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, Philippines, a couple of places. And I think, you know, you start to travel and you start to see the world differently and your perspective starts to change and you start talking to more people. And the culture of people that do travel are quite often 
super open-minded, love learning, love exploring. And when you make lots of friends in the travel scene, I guess you are more likely to be like that yourself because you, it's, I guess it's, there's a sense of tribalism, maybe. I don't know if that's true. But you are more inclined to learn and you, and you do want to learn. And that's maybe why personally a lot of people travel um, is to learn. And I think when I started doing that and I guess being on social media um, and reading a lot and a lot of books, um, yeah, I think my perspective started to change and be more aware of the, <laughs> excuse my French, but shit fuckery of the absolute nonsense that is the media and um, of certain aspects of the government and corporations. And, yeah, I think it's only recently that I've been quite uh, – I guess chosen with my words and effective with what I'm doing. Like I'm in quite a interesting position, which I'm employed as a nature campaigner and heavily involved in politics in my, in my state. And obviously earthly education has a lot of influence, but you know, I think probably two, three years ago, I wasn't even close to where I'm at today. And that's probably because um, there's a word for people that love learning and I'm forgetting what that word is right now. But I think that's what I am. I just, I do love learning and I'm always about understanding why and why is it that way? And I can't just look at things and be like, accept them for what they are. And I wish I could because I'm sure my brain would rest easier. But <laughs> <laughs> I love to just like look at problems and think about what's the solution and how do we get there and, and what's, what's going wrong and what goes right. And I have that same approach for earthly education. That's probably why it does quite well because I'm constantly readjusting how I do it and how I can be better at it and what tools I can use to be better at it. And it's a real like growth mindset. And I think being, I guess at the crux of all of that is just being open-minded. So that's probably my story. I don't think there's any key moments. It's probably just a mindset across all of my experiences, which was that sense of open-mindedness and and the love love of learning. Yeah, I think um, you really hit the nail on the head there because I think for many people, it's kind of like that you start with seeing things like, you know, hearing about things like global warming, which is not accurate at all, I think, as a description. Mm. Um, uh, you kind of, then many people start with like going vegan or changing their diet, doing these individual things at home, which... Um, I think is also a good, you know, gateway into getting all these bigger things. So it's not that overwhelming and you realize where your clothes are coming from, where your water is coming from. And you try, you know, to reduce maybe your negative impact individually. And then the more and more you learn and the more like accounts, environmental accounts you follow, the more information you get. And at the end, you kind of realize that through every layer you went through, there's a deeper layer of as you already said shit fuckery in the world <laughs> that is just you know is so crazy which kind of just all sounds like a really bad science fiction movie and you think like how can this get any worse and how did I not know about all of this so it's definitely as you said it's just like you learn something new all the time and you get become more and more aware about all these things and Obviously, we are at a very, very critical uh, point in time right now. And I don't know if I, uh, as you said before, you have at least, I mean, I think it's the same anywhere. Also in Germany, um, where I am right now, um, like the, some of the news accounts I follow, if they report something on the climate crisis or something like that, there are so many comments down there that mm. are just you know climate denial and these little things like you're reporting on whatever a huge disaster but your reporter is wearing nike shoes or something you know just <laughs> dumb stuff like that that is just um, completely has you know it has nothing to do with the actual topic so i don't know if i could deal with that those things actually it just i i can't really deal with that so i would I would really like to know how you uh on the like the the Facebook thing that you mentioned, how can you actually control like the the trolls and the climate deniers that if you want to control a platform like that, especially like Facebook, um, which 
obviously for good reason is also that anybody can post there that yeah the different voices are in silence because obviously it's still supposed to be you know open public platforms how do you then control like not science-based climate deniers and all these trolls how do you even start Oof, asking the real questions um <laughs> i think that like i've found a lot of effectiveness in just being better than the climate deniers like i think if you're calculated and you use similar cues as what they do, so what they're quite often doing is, is fear and, and hate and uh, like quite powerful emotive tools and like I think using stereotypes and all these really dangerous tools, but you can actually flip that switch. And if you're selling the idea of, I guess I think fear is still quite a, a strong driver and as is anger. And I think we're, we're both using them, but using them for different reasons. So what I mean by that is, like climate deniers are making it's it's all angry that we're going to build wind turbines and everyone's going to lose their job and we're going to live in caves. But like you can do the exact same thing as a climate activist and just talk about, I guess, the ramifications of the climate crisis and the consequences without action. Um, and that's quite simple. And you can be eloquent about how you do that. But you can also use the other really strong emotions, which are um, hope and, and happiness and optimism. And, and how do we benefit from acting on the climate crisis, which I think is quite straightforward because I think extreme weather events and, and collapse of civilizations are not things that we should be wanting to look like have in our future. So if we can start to paint the picture of what the future can look like and, and the benefits and the solutions and um, the pragmatic approach to how we can get there, like people resonate with that. But I think, and I, again, I can't speak for the world, but in Australia, like it's always been not always, but what I've noticed in my activism years is it's really apathetic, like apathetic and not excited to speak out about climate change. And that's because what they've done is really effective in which they politicized climate change. And by doing that, you made a, a taboo topic to talk about because every time you talk about it, you started an argument. And people don't feel like arguing 24-7 unless you're living in America, I guess. But it, like majority of places... I don't think that everyone wants to argue because that, that act of confrontation is exhausting. And like you said before, like it's arguably traumatic to look at um, and feel and engage with. So every time that you do engage, like you're taking a piece of yourself. So that hurts. So don't, and this is the most probably biggest piece of advice in combating climate disinformation is do not engage with it. Never engage with it because all you're doing is one, amplifying their voice because that's how the algorithm works. Anytime you engage with anything, you amplify that post or that comment. And two, they're stealing your time and your energy. And by doing so, you can't do effective climate activism, which is not engaging with the less than 10% of people that are climate deniers, but rather engaging with the climate positive passive people. And by that, I mean a whole bunch of people understand the reality of climate change but don't do anything really about it. So now we need to start activating these, what I call passive allies that understand the crisis, that know that we need to do things, but don't really know what to do or how to do it. So there's so much more positive outcomes that we can achieve by engaging those people than rather active, uh, sorry, engaging with climate deniers. And th that happens in the real world and that happens in the digital world as well. So never engage with climate deniers, write your own comment, get other people to engage with that comment or that post and just do better than them. And it's, that's the algorithm in a nutshell. Like yeah, we're without, constantly trying to work out. So you're you saying, yeah, sorry. So you're saying um, kind of putting your own science reality based information out there without actually replying to that comment, just kind of replacing it or putting in an antidote to that comment out there. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's, that's pretty good advice, actually. I think I've asked this uh, another person before, and this was actually a very good answer. So thank you. So anybody who's out there, you know, the next time you're getting mad about some comment or post, just put your own comment or post out there to replace uh, the BS. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It works exactly like that. It's a, it's a really good piece of advice. And I think, like, we, we sometimes want to engage in, like, tell a denier how stupid they are or inappropriate they are. But the reality is like 50% of them are like funded or they're bots or they're just woefully disinformed and they don't realize that what they've been consuming 
is yeah propaganda from fossil fuel companies so it's just not worth, worth our time like like you said just put your own comment there and do it better than they do and it's quite easy to do it because most people can look at climate denial these days and understand that it's trash because all they have to do is look outside i mean today we've got 50 plus 50 plus million pakistanis displaced from a flood that's pretty unprecedented you can't deny climate change anymore the effects are here today uh, so yeah all you need to do is start focusing on what we can do about it and amplifying yeah. that do not waste our time with climate deniers well the scary thing is that you don't even have to look at pakistan or bangladesh anymore i think this summer no matter where you are you have mm. gotten a spoonful of um, the climate emergency um, i mean also all over europe i mean australia definitely the last few years has taken a few hard hits um, but mm. basically right now anywhere. So on the other end, as bad as that is, as much as we would have liked world leaders to stop that even getting to this point, um, it's, I think, good just for, you know, communities to wake up um, and say, okay, let's become maybe independent. Let's mobilize ourselves and not wait for some bogus climate bill to come save us all. Um, mm. So... Yeah, I mean, I want to, in this also kind of, uh, in this episode, also touch on, you know, the deeper, just systemic issues. And I think you might have some very interesting thoughts on some of these things. So on earthly education, you also, as I said before, you repost a lot, um, like tweets, um, other just very relevant uh, comments or posts, and also um by Peter Kalmus, the climate scientist who is, I think, right now very famous all over social mm. media um, as a climate scientist, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and he just, uh, you just recently posted a tweet of him that said, it's depressing to see people worshipping <laughs> billionaires. Um, so let's talk about billionaires and kind of the quote-unquote elite um, what are kind of your thoughts there? What is anything you maybe want to say about how much some people do not realize that billionaires and this elite is actually controlling and kind of hijacking the way the, the turns that our world actually takes by enriching themselves? What is something you want people maybe to realize or that you've come to realize during the last few years? Yeah, so much to unpack. I mean, you could write a, I mean, there are books on billionaires. <laughs> we're constantly, um, I think the most important thing is there's there's two major issues. Oh, sorry, you know, I'm going to go with, yeah, let's go with two. So the, the, the massive consumption of like the elite and, and the billionaires is like ridiculous. So I think it's the top 1% who I should point out is a lot of people. Like billionaires are actually only 0.01%. The top 10%, if you're in a like a, a Western nation earning over 50,000, I guess, US dollars on average a year, like you're well above the top 10%. So I think we need to point out, I guess, that. But I shouldn't just focus on that. I want to focus on billionaires. And I think it's the one top 1% uh, equates for 16% of all global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's double the bottom 50% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the 1% is causing double the bottom 50% of greenhouse gas emissions. But a consumption aside, what I'm most concerned about is what you just touched on, which is the fact that they are controlling politics, this idea of state capture and billionaires with their infinite wealth. Like we can't even, as people that don't have close to even million dollars, we can't conceptualize how much a billion dollars is. It's, it's basically infinite amount of wealth. You can do whatever you want with it. And what they do predominantly is lobby. And we've got like individuals and corporations buying politicians and governments and parties and through their donations get to decide policy. And if that policy is being bought and isn't representing the other 99% of people, then that policy is never going to be good. And I think we can talk about uh, left and right and progressive, conservative and all these other things. But I think policy, like the most important thing to think about is policy and is it good or is it bad? And what are the good bits and what are the bad bits? 
So if policy is to continue greenhouse gas emissions, when every single freaking scientist on earth is saying we can no longer do that, we have to peak emissions now and we have to rapidly reduce and invest in nature-based solutions and all sorts of other things. And they're not doing that because there's this massive block on societal progress, which comes in the form of lobbying and state capture and buying politicians and dirty money in politics. So, yeah, sorry, here you go. No, no worries. I think this is exactly, um, you know, what you're saying, like state capture and actually interfering with politics. Like this is even more um, exactly as you said than just the sheer consumption and kind of like destruction of this planet and oh, just the sheer extraction of resources and exploitation of this planet um, is just so crazy, but also the influence that these people have. And I also have to say that billionaires actually sometimes, just as much as we can imagine how much money, you know, that infinite wealth is, how you feel, because to them, basically, it's it's like the thing of the world is your oyster. You can literally do anything. Like money mm. is not even, I think, probably for them a concept anymore something that most of us <laughs> think about daily you know even if you're at the bakery taking out um just a bill it's it's something you think about every day for them i don't think money is a concept and one thing that you know i want to know also your opinion on is um i mean you, you've also done posts about you know uh the i think the the shortest flights on private jets that uh <laughs> very rich people take all over the world which are like crazy for car rides that would take 45 minutes like things like that and we can never imagine how how do people even think like that but more so it just scares me that let's say the the very very worst like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Klaus Schwab and things like that. Like people, they to me don't even, when they speak or when I see them or hear their opinions, they don't even look like people to me. You know what I mean? It actually <laughs> like scares me. And I think really it's insane just how money and wealth and this power that people have changes them. So what are some of the craziest things that have been said or done by billionaires like in the last few months, you know, like all those ideas that they come up with, with populating other planets or shooting or mm. like adding something to our atmosphere to cool it down, like all these crazy weird things that, that those people do. What is something that really shocked you? I, I was reading last night about Elon Musk's new Starlink second gen. And I think this is like, this is probably a smallish issue compared to other horrible things. But just the idea that if he doesn't get it right, or if, sorry, if Tesla doesn't get it right or whatever Starlink doesn't get it right, like the satellites, it's something like 30,000 satellites or something. If they don't get into orbit accurately, they're going to start falling out of the sky. And to me, that just sounds like a massive risk. Like, why would you do something that if you don't get it right perfectly can just cause so much chaos ecologically and climate, climatary? And, like, to get 30,000 satellites up, like, that's so much rockets, so many rockets. And, like, I think there's not really anything that they're doing that's that good. I mean, there's a couple of effective health campaigns, but when it comes to environment and climate, like, the issue is just infinite resource extraction and hyper-consumerism and pushing the idea that we need more and more and more and more, and I guess that's capitalism for what it's worth. And, uh, yeah, I think that the biggest issue is that we have so many people just looking to these billionaires for these solutions and these crazy ideas of living on other planets and all that nonsense. And I would rather if those same people were just like, hey, taxes, how good are taxes on the, <laughs> on the rich? Because if we can start adequately taxing the rich, I, I don't like how society has started to, I'm not sure, again, this could be an Australian thing, but we don't like to talk about taxes. They're, they're apparently a bad thing when actually they're amazing because they fund schools, they fund hospitals, they fund public transport. And what they can start to fund now is nature-based solutions and restoration projects and conservation and all these amazing things that we need to start seeing. And I don't understand why there's not a massive movement just called tax the rich. 
tax the rich. Like the hashtag tax the rich should be in every single post because we could achieve so many of our solutions. But I guess then we'd have to deal with a fairly large amount of corrupt governments as well. But I think we can do that because without the billionaires with their infinite wealth, wouldn't have as much power and sway over political decisions. Yeah, definitely. Um, But I think the thing that also, as you said, people look to these billionaires for these solutions and listen to them or actually applaud them. I think that's just one of the shows just how kind of wrong our system is. And for many, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I don't think that even how much money a lot of celebrities have not even taking into account like the, the billionaires um i don't think it should be possible for single persons to accumulate that much money and not in a way of um communism <laughs> which is what people <laughs> automatically think of but i think um it's just like nobody if you actually look at it gets to that point of let's say yeah being a billionaire accumulating that much wealth and money by making good decisions that serve society and communities that take natural systems and ecosystem health into account none of them like show me one example how people actually get incredibly wealthy or rich and accumulate a lot of wealth by actually uh, like regenerating nature, doing positive things for people and planet and really having kind of an empathy for societal and ecological issues, understanding them and trying to make the world a better place. Like show me one person <laughs> who actually does that. And I think this is the thing, like just reevaluating who you're looking to because within our own communities, within towns and cities, like on local levels, there are amazing people you can find there. Like if you go to your farmer's market, you might find, you know, people who farm regeneratively, who do permaculture, you might have naturopaths or holistic health practitioners in your town or amazing teachers who try, you know, to educate children in ways that are actually useful you know there are all these people within our own communities that do so much more good for the planet without all of this wealth who mostly are people you know that are not rich because those things in our world don't make you rich so I want to know from you if you could design like a town or community or redesign your own community where you're currently living in where would you say you know this would be my ideal community that would fit my values and is kind of sustainable that could be a town in this way for really long term like and and what just makes sense like with your values and a town that caters like to human non-human animals and nature's needs what would be your ideal like community eco village whatever you want to call it Mm, well first and foremost the biggest veggie garden ever and i guess that you do need some large scale like i guess um food production around but yeah close by food production uh but veggie gardens like i say and i think i would like to see everyone involved in the production of food i think we've all moved so far away from under uh sorry appreciating where our food comes from and i think that's an issue with society because if you don't understand where your food's coming from then you're not likely to understand like the land clearing and the, I guess the food miles and the chemicals used. And um, I guess animal agriculture is a good example. Like I think if a lot of people saw the process of how animals are reared and then produced and then slaughtered, I think there would be a lot less people eating meat. And like, I think we could see, yeah. And so I guess my food community back on the question um, is more connected to, Uh, food and where you are and a sense of place and I would like to see more emphasis on yeah building relationships in your community Um, when I was a kid 20 years ago like I knew everybody on my street and we played all together and we ride our bikes everywhere and whatnot and that component of society seemingly in my area at least has been lost and I might be the fault of smartphones and technology which I'm a part of a problem of or it could be how bad car culture is uh, because it's not safe to play on the streets anymore because there's cars everywhere all the time so I guess my community would have a real emphasis on not 
arguably idiotic things such as building your community around cars. I don't see why that's still being pushed by so many places. I think we can absolutely build walkable cities and uh, places that you can uh, ride your bike within or walk along the park, um, public transport as well. But I guess first and foremost, I think I would like to see the decision-making process of the community brought back to us because I think it's so long gone. I don't think that there's really a whole bunch of decision-making process that does benefit that community level. And I don't know if it can come back. I, I don't know the, the data on that or the, the process, but my community that I'm envisioning right now definitely has a real buy-in of how things work. And I want every single voice heard. I'm quite tired of how disregarded uh, certain voices in society are. Uh, like in Australia, we have massive issues with Indigenous voice and we're starting to see a slight shift towards the right direction and that's great after 20 years of horrendous government. But I would like to see everyone in every community being heard and I think to me that's going to foster and produce the best kind of community that benefits everyone Yeah, uh, because when everyone's thinking about everyone and everything, uh, especially if you're connected to your food systems, which is a great way to connect to nature, if I'm honest. Um, I just think the right decisions will be made and it will flourish into a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I can 100% agree with that. I think also food systems, um, where food comes from, and also um, localizing food production again and making it something that community is actually part of and most importantly in charge of. Um, mm. I think is one of the most important things. And also, as you said, sense of place, incredibly important. Like if you if you develop this thing again of, I, I mean, it's great that people today, I think, you know, without leaving out, you know, <laughs> emissions and uh, things like that, that people can travel the globe and kind of say, okay, I don't have to be stuck somewhere. If I feel if I was born in Italy, but I feel more at home in New Zealand, you know, then I can go there. I think it's nice that people can see the world kind of as a more open place and not just a place with borders in some way is also good. But I think redeveloping the sense of like, this is my home, this is my community, I know people here, I know who they are, I know what they do, I know who I could ask for help, you know, if, if there's a tradie on my blog and I can say, mm. you know, come over, maybe you can fix something for me and I can give you, you know, produce in return, like things like that that sounds so outdated and for some people not desirable at all. I think this is really what can make communities so resilient and so much more lively in places where you actually feel like you know this is my place this is where I belong and this is where I'm also safe you know I think communities are so not independent today many um it, that it's really important to say okay you know let's become more self-sufficient and dependent so I love the part uh, about food production because I think it's really important Mm, so true. And I think what you're just touching on then is just less individualism and more sharing. And I yeah. didn't realize that that's, that's a confrontational and problematic concept for a lot of people. I'm challenging that recently with uh, all sorts of groups and the politics that I'm involved in. But I would just love to see a massive shift away from individualism towards, yeah, sharing. And I think yeah. that's probably what in its uh, most basic form is what Earthly is all about is yeah. in that idea that we're trying to create a community and, and push us all along together because every single person that's posting about climate or talking about the environment, like we all have the same goals and same mission and, and, and whatnot. And I think, uh, yeah, I think we're all starting to identify that. But outside of the environmental world, it's just still a sense of moving towards individualism as opposed to sharing. But, yeah, so if you have any secret recipes how to flip that one, please do let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I if I did, I would broadcast it um, everywhere. But 
I, I want to ask you one last question just to warn you, I think, because, you know, with some people, you just have this flow in talking. I am going to ask you to make another episode with me because I think we would have a lot to talk about. I um, would really like to touch on um, one of the last posts um, on Earthly Education account, um, which was... You made this reel, which said, did you know um, global crop failures hit at two degrees, billions suffer fatal heat waves, floods at three degrees, billions of lives are lost at four degrees. We're heading to two degrees by 2035. We're heading to three degrees by 2060. And we're heading to four degrees plus by 2075. Why isn't this front page news? Now, first of all, um, a few people might know this already a few people might hear this and think this is not possible and it sounds apocalyptic which it obviously does um why in your opinion if people say you know if all this were true it would be in the news every day um and obviously um news outlets report which is something i want to stress they they often report on big you know climate disasters natural disasters if there's like a huge flood somewhere or droughts it is in the news and people do hear about it but often you know these specific numbers and saying if we don't phase out fossil fuels within the next three to four years and if we don't like make actual concrete plans this and this will happen this is often not um just uh, conveyed in news outlets and the like the mainstream media so why do you think what are some of the few reasons that numbers like these and realities like this which is something climate scientists all over the world are saying and um why they're also protesting why is this not front page news in your opinion I don't think anyone says it better than George Monbiot when he calls, he's coined a new term to describe the press, which is called the billionaire press. Like there's no other reason why billionaires and and mega money buys media organisations other than to control and not report adequately on what they should be reporting on because big money is quite often correlated with resource extraction, which is fossil fuels. So it's like I think the best example is Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News and Sky News in Australia and a whole bunch of others around the world, and he's got vested interests in fossil fuels. And by doing so, when you're the media, you can just continue to keep the trivial important and the important trivial. And I think that's the media mantra right there. They don't focus on what is so important. And yes, they may cover the fires, the floods, the droughts, the heat waves, but they are very calculated in their lack of connecting to those statistics that you just talked about. If they truly wanted to solve the climate crisis, I believe they could do it within a week or two because they could talk about these numbers every single day and it would mobilize the heck out of people because... I've done a, this is a nice little social experiment, but in my own household with my parents, I found I've had a million conversations with them and uh, about a lot of things, but I found the most effective thing to do was to control what media they were watching. So rather than attacking their arguments or their ideas, I would just encourage them to flip what media they're watching, you know, talk them through the problem of media and then get them away from the six o'clock news and then do a favor for them and stop them from buying the local advertiser, which is a Murdoch owned advertiser and flip it with something slightly more progressive and reporting factual news, such as the guardian or in my example in Australia is the Saturday paper. And that was so effective because they've grown up with what was thought to be a trusted voice, which was the media, the newspapers, like these things were respected. Journalism less than 20 years ago was respected. So you've got this whole generation of people that love and value and understand that media is a good thing. But media has been bought out. So unless you're pushing the really strong voices for climate in the form of traditional conventional press, then they're going to continue to consume the wrong things. So you've got two solutions there. We either mimic 
the conventional press and get them to do it better or we amplify the voices of the good scientists and activists and uh, frontline people that aren't being amplified already. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers the question of how and why, but that's my take on it anyway. No, I love that social experiment you did in your own house. <laughs> I think that's so great that it's actually, um, it kind of touches on what we talked about before, the impact that just media has on our minds, how we view things, how we feel, you know, sometimes how hopeful, how scared we are. Um, it is a powerful tool. So I think this is incredible that you kind of saw the effects of that in your own home. Um, and I mean, this is something that like everybody can do, kind of take home as well after this and try it in your house. If you're somebody, you know, often uh, there are these intergenerational conflicts uh, about all these topics because, you know, a lot of us are growing up with with like all these crises now and before you know I also did a podcast with my mother about this like the 70s 80s 90s there was like this at least in like the western industrialized world economic growth and this growth mindset it was like people had money and they partied and like the world just felt like it was so prosperous, like that would never end, which obviously they did not know that that would have to come to a like halt pretty soon. Um, so kind of if you have these, if somebody listening has the, these conflicts with maybe like their parents or other family members or friends, just maybe like even, I mean, on Netflix, there are great documentaries um all over there are so many good media outlets as you said like I also did this on my mother's phone I took down <laughs> some of the mainstream <laughs> media and replaced it with Vice World News and The Guardian I put um Earthly Education on there um and <laughs> just a few and like AJ Plus there's so, so many great outlets out there that just show you different things so yeah I love that I think that's definitely good and people can actually take that home <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant to talk. And like you said, I would love to touch base again in the future and hopefully, like I said, have more to report on with uh, all the cool things that Earthly's doing. And everyone out there, please do follow Earthly Education and, uh, you know, get involved. If you ever want to make content for Earthly, everyone's welcome. Or like you were saying earlier, uh, invite us to collaborate and use Earthly as a, a space to become your own media source. Like, Don't bother trying to get the media to change because I kind of strongly believe that they're not going to. But what you can do is do it better than they do. And we can do that with social media. Thank you very much um, for, I think it's like, is it like 9 p.m. right now in Australia or something like yep. that? Pretty late already, okay. So you've <laughs> yeah. had a full day and you still managed to talk about all these deeper issues which require I never some... stop I can't I can't help myself I love yeah. talking about this stuff it's unfortunate maybe for you talking about all this now and just putting your thoughts out there maybe it will quiet your mind for tonight at least well thank you so much thank you for the opportunity Also, I want to acknowledge and honor Indigenous and First Nations peoples as custodians of most of planet Earth's biodiversity and bearers of ancient knowledge. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and recognize all Indigenous and First Nations peoples' strength, resilience, and deep connection to nature. Thank you.